you this morning is the most important choice. The most important choice. To begin, let me say this. We make choices constantly. Just think about it. This morning while you were getting dressed, you had to make a choice about what you would wear. You probably had to make a choice as to whether or not you'd have breakfast, and and if you were going to have breakfast, what you were going to have. During the week, you made choices like which route you would take to work, where to get takeout from, and whether you would watch a movie or a show. At work, you probably had to make choices like whether or not you'd finish an assignment now or later, whether or not you'd answer that email now or later, or how you would approach a coworker over a problem or an issue. We make choices constantly, each and every day. But there's another more serious and solemn choice that we have to make, you and I. And that choice has to do with this question. What kind of life will I live? What kind of legacy will I leave? How will people remember me in the end? This morning, I want to talk to you about the most important choice. From Psalm 1, using three simple points, the faith, the fruit, and the finish. So let's look at Psalm 1 together this morning, beginning with our first point, which is the faith. This is found in verses 1 and 2. I'll read them again aloud. If you will, please read it with your eyes. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. First of all, in our three points this morning, we see the faith. The faith. In the first two verses, we're seeing what I would affectionately refer to as a life that is lived in accordance to the faith. Not just common sense, not just general moral fortitude, but the faith, a system of belief and conviction that exists in direct correlation and result to knowing God and knowing his word. To start, notice the man's condition. It says in verse 1, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. It's a word, blessed or blessed, that we've used so much and in so many different circumstances, I hardly believe we even know what it means anymore. But the truth is, the word blessed means to have God's favor on your life. To be blessed means to be happy. To be blessed means to have joy. In fact, some translations put it this way, to be very well off. It's, in fact, the same word that is used in the New Testament when Jesus gives us the Beatitudes. And he says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, and blessed are those who mourn. What he's saying is happy, joyful, fortunate, very well off. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why does this person in particular in Psalm 1 have God's favor or blessing on him 
or her. Why is he or she so happy? Well, there are two answers here. One is positive and one is negative. That's right, one positive, one negative. If you want to be blessed by God, if you want to be happy, if you want to have joy and a blessedness that can't be taken from you by circumstances or any other thing, that you receive by knowing the Lord, knowing his, his will, and living in accordance to that faith, then you need something both positive and negative. Let's start with the negative. First of all, I want you to notice the negative. It says that this person, this blessed man, this happy man, this joyful man, this man who is very well off, is someone who, look at it, does not, here's your negative, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of the sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers. We good so far? Say amen. You can't have the blessing of God in your life if you're walking according to the wicked, if you're standing around with a bunch of sinners, or you're sitting in the seat with a group of scoffers, which is a word that basically means mockers. If you have an NIV, then you probably will see there at the end of verse 1, it says mockers. And that's essentially what that word means, anti-God people who ridicule the faith and ridicule you because you mean to tell me that... You believe in a man who lived 2,000 years ago and died and rose again? You say, yes, you believe in UFOs, so shut up. Right? Well, maybe you don't talk like that. I talk like that. I'm going to get a little exasperated. You know, at Bayside, there's aliens, but don't talk to me about Jesus. That's unbelievable. People are stupid. They will believe anything but the truth because the truth is convicting. It's convenient to believe in something there's absolutely no evidence for, but it's very convicting to believe about Jesus because there's a lot of evidence for Jesus. And some of us are the evidence, amen? If you want to be blessed by God, you got to pay attention to the company you keep. Let me say that again. If you want to be blessed by God, you've got to pay attention to the company you keep. Now, I'm not talking about this bomb shelter Christianity where you never go outside. You don't shop at that store because, I don't know, there's something about that store that just you are convinced displeases God, so you can't go there, and you can't go over here to this other place because there's something else about it that displeases God, and you never turn on the television because, you know, it's electricity and God doesn't... I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about living in the world, but not of the world. I'm talking about having friends that don't believe what you believe, but not having friends that don't believe what you believe in your inner circle. Your inner circle's got to be sanctified. Your spouse, your business partner, everybody that means the most to you in your circle must be sanctified. They must believe what you believe, or or otherwise you're going to compromise your success and your blessedness. You can't walk with them, you can't stand with them, and you can't sit with them. I want you to note that progression, by the way. It's gradual, isn't it? 
Sometimes people say, hey, come on. You go, okay, I'll come on. And then before you know it, you're standing with them. And then after that, you're sitting with them, which means now you're a permanent fixture. You're not with the group. You are the group. Friends, if you want to be blessed by God, if you want God's blessing on your life, then you need to be mindful of the company you keep. But that's the negative. I also want you to note the positive. He's blessed not only because what he doesn't do, but he's also blessed because of what he does do. Look at the verse again with me. He sa- it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The law of the Lord here is what we would call a synecdoche. It's just a literary term that helps us understand the whole because of a part. So, so when, when it says the law of the Lord, it's not just referring to what we would call the Torah or Moses' books. The law of the Lord is a synecdoche. It's, it's the part representative of the whole. In other words, he loves the Old Testament. He loves God's word. This is not just a little part of it that he likes. His delight is in God's word. Church, let me ask you a question. Do you delight in God's word? Do you delight in hearing it read, hearing it preached? Do you delight in it reverberating in your soul? Like the psalmist says, I've hidden your word in my heart. Do you delight in the law of the Lord? I love what one commentator says, and I quote, the godly in every age live in accordance with God's revelation. That's this book. This is what we're doing today. I'm not standing up here and opening up, I don't know, some Reader's Digest or the Miami Herald or or New York Times and preaching to you about current events. I don't care about current events. The world's crazy. I don't know. Is that, that's, suffice it to say, don't follow the world that has no idea what it's doing. This is truth. Every Wednesday, every Sunday, every Bible study, we get together and we open this book because we believe that God's revelation is the truth. And so we don't veer to the right or to the left. Our delight is in the law of the Lord. But... What he does positively is not only delight in the law of the Lord, but he meditates on it. He meditates on it. The word for meditate is an onomatopoetic word. It's a word that comes from a sound. In other words, the translation of this word is is used to represent the grunting and the churning that is made by animals that chew the cud. Cows have five stomachs, and they just regurgitate what they eat, and they chew it again. It doesn't sound pleasant. It's not meant to sound pleasant. Just go with me here for a minute. What God's word is telling us is, you know how they're always mumbling and grumbling and just just making that sound because they keep chewing and chewing and chewing? You go, yeah, that's what you should be doing with your mind and God's word. You should be mumbling to yourself about it. 
You should be talking to yourself about it. You should be ruminating on it. You should be thinking about it. That's what it means to meditate. Now, sometimes us Westerners, particularly, oh, I almost made a very derogatory statement there. I'm not going to take that back. I was going to say like 20-something-year-old girls, but that would, be, that would be unkind. But you know the yoga fascination. I don't know why the Western world is so fascinated with the Far East. Hinduism is not biblical. You can't say it's just stretching. No, it's part of a religious process by which you will be saved in that religious dogma. Stretching is good, fine. But you've never stretched a day in your life, and now you got a mat and some weird waterfall thing in the corner of your room, and some weird sitar music playing in the background, and you're like, it's just stretching, Joe. Shut up! Who are you talking to? I'm not stupid. The reality of the matter is, you want the features of what you find fascinating. But Satan is taking your soul away from God's purpose in your life with that fascination. Stretch all you want. I don't stretch all. You can downward dog, whatever you got to do, stretch. It's good for you, stretch. God made your muscles and your tendons and your ligaments. You need to stretch. But save the sitar music and the little waterfall thing, okay? Meditation, contrary to what the Far East religions try to convince you, meditation is not about mindlessness. It's about mindfulness. There is nothing attractive or sexy about a stupid Christian. If you are ignorant, you are not living in God's will. The scriptures tell us to love the Lord our God with all our mind. With all our what? All our mind. If every single time you face a circumstance or if every single time you have a question, your answer is, I don't know, you're failing. You're failing. You want more mercy. Oh, well, uh, no. Grow up. Learn something. Don't go another month without ever opening your Bible. Read your Bible. You want to be blessed? Meditate on the law of the Lord. Negative and positive. Do not hang with that group or that society. Number two, meditate on his word. Do do that. Use your mind to love the Lord, church, and he will grow you and he will bless you. And that will consequently lead to fruit. You live according to your faith, and that leads us to our second point in verses three and four. You will have fruit. Look at it with me. He, which is who? That blessed man or woman. He or she is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its what? Its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not like that, but they're like the chaff with which the, the wind 
drives away. And secondly, we're looking at fruit. Let's see what a life of faith looks like in real time. That's what it looks like. It looks like fruit. So first of all, as our second point suggests, a life of faith is a life of fruit. A life of faith is a life of fruit. Let me say this again. A life of faith is a life of fruit. And I'm not talking about these holy nuts. I'm talking about fruitfulness. People's who, people who have faith that actually makes a practical implication and effect in their life and the lives of others. I'm not talking about those people. You talk to them about the Bible and their eyes glaze over. The weird ones. Oh, I've spoken in tongues four times last week. First of all, no, you didn't. And second of all, that's not what fruitfulness is about. I'm wondering where the people are who are so in touch with God and his word that they are just bearing fruit in their life that's positively affecting people around them. The scripture says he will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Now, I'm not much of a farmer, and uh, I'm not much of a gardener either. But I'll tell you this. Things that are planted next to water don't need help. They just grow. That's what they do. They just grow. They don't need a specialist. They don't need a horticulturalist. They don't need fertilizer. They don't need some bag of something from Home Depot. They just grow. This is what they do. Church, that's how it should be with us. If we're close to God, we will grow. It's organic. It's natural. It doesn't have to be forced. The reality of the matter is sometimes we get to a place in our life where we're stale or we're not growing and we don't know why, but the answer is always simple. We're not close enough to God. And you might say, well, I feel like I was growing and I got close to God. Well, that's what happens when you get to a particular maturity level that demands more than what you're willing to do for growth. You got to make a choice. No choice, no change. This is how this works. What you used to do when you were a young Christian would grow you, but now as a more mature Christian, it's not sufficient. You read one chapter and it carried you for three days. That doesn't fly anymore. You're, you're, you're grown up now. You got to do grown up things. It's the same way with us as adults. We grow up as kids. We throw one of those three-minute instant microwave mac and cheeses in there, right? Mix it up, eat it, great. You turn 46, it ain't doing it anymore. I need food. I'm going to need more than the instant mac and cheese. This is how our Christianity is, friends. What used to be sufficient for us is insufficient in adulthood. It doesn't have the nutrients it doesn't have the value 
So sometimes when we get stale, it isn't that we weren't growing before with the things that we were practicing. It's that those things are insufficient to take us to the next stage. Do you want to keep growing? Well, yes, then you got to do more. You got to go deeper. Because if you are close to God, you will be fruitful. It's natural. It's natural. It's not complicated. In the New Testament, we have a wonderful list of fruit called the fruit of the Spirit. It's found in Galatians chapter 5, and you know what they are. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruit of the Spirit given to us in Galatians chapter 5. I encourage you to go read that chapter this week, perhaps as your devotional material. You'll enjoy it. But what I want you to note there is all of those fruit are the spirits. They're not ours. It's not the fruit of Joe or the fruit of Al or the fruit of Jenny. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And we want to get out of the way and be so close to God that his fruit is budding in our lives. Amen? Not only that, but there's permanence to this fruit. There's permanence to this fruit. Look at it again. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in its season, and here it is, its leaf does not wither. There's permanence to this. Maybe we could call it reliability. There's reliability to this. A fruitful person is a reliable person. But secondly, this is unlike the wicked. Life of faith is a life of fruit. And secondly, this is unlike the life of the wicked. The word wicked in the Bible means bad or ungodly. In the Bible, you have two options. You're either wicked or you're righteous. You're wicked or you're righteous. And you say, well... Sometimes, I, no, you're one or the other. It's not to say that wicked people don't sometimes do something that could be classified as something a righteous person would do, or that righteous people will not sometimes do something that could be classified as something that a wicked person would do. Let's not get crazy trying to grab specifics and make them the generalization. Generally speaking, you got two classes of people in the Bible, righteous and wicked. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 29 says, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. You can see the juxtaposition in that proverb alone. Does that mean that, that when the wicked pray, God doesn't hear them? Of course not. It means that he's under no obligation to answer them. He's far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. There are only two options for you and me when it comes to life. We can live the life of the righteous, as described in the Bible, or we can forsake that way and live the way of the wicked. The righteous are fruitful, but the wicked are dry. In the one instance, we see fruit and we see permanence. And the other description in verse 4 is the wicked, which goes like this, the wicked aren't like that. 
They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. I, I know that we know some people like this. When the going gets tough, they get gone. Well, they have nothing to offer. When things start to get difficult, they don't say, I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to knuckle down. God's going to give me the strength. And with the people who are around me, I can get through this. No, they don't do that. As soon as things get difficult, they're like the chaff. The wind drives them away. This is what Jesus was talking about in Luke's gospel. Listen to this. Jesus says, and I quote, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Church, say amen if you're listening. Our lives produce what is in our hearts. Our lives produce what is in our hearts. Words can deceive and fool people for a little while, but eventually the truth comes out. Eventually the fruit will show itself. Notice, church, that as far as the poet is concerned, as far as the Bible is concerned, there is no neutral ground here. We have the righteous and the wicked. And when Jesus speaks in a similar fashion, he says, good tree, bad tree. Good tree, good fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit. Let's look at our final point this morning. We talked about the faith which leads to fruit and finally to the finish. This is found in verses 5 and 6. You can look at it again with your eyes. It says, therefore, which is an important position here. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, because the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So thirdly, we have the finish. We've had the faith, which leads to the fruit, which ultimately concludes in the finish. This is seen in the final two verses of this psalm, which seem to bring the end which, of course, we would refer to as the future or the finish, into the present because that's what should be driving us. That's what should be motivating us. That's what should be convicting us, what we believe about the future. The decisions we make today, we should be deciding on in a way that reflects this truth, I believe, God is in my future. I believe God will fulfill his promises. I believe God is calling me to a certain life because of what Jesus did in the past. But here's the truth. Our choices should lead to change. 
If our choices don't lead to change, then we have a very serious crisis of conscience to deal with. If we say to ourselves or if we say to others that our lives are different, but no one can see the difference and no one can tell the difference, then we have a problem. We're being dishonest and the fruit is showing itself and the fruit always ends in a finish. And this should be our perspective. This should be our philosophy, friends. We shouldn't be chasing the immediate pleasure, the easy fix, the gratification of today. We should be making our decisions, whether convenient or inconvenient, in view of the fact that God has said, I will meet you in the future. Some of us are stuck in this cycle, stuck in a cycle of making decisions that are immediately gratifying with complete disregard for tomorrow. We see it in our country. We see it in our counties. We see it in our circles. The reality of the matter is we have been raised up in our culture to believe that the satisfaction that we can find right now is the most important satisfaction that we could ever have And no satisfaction will ever come ever again if we don't enjoy it now. And the Bible is completely against this thinking. The Bible is all about saying no because the future is a yes in Jesus. The the Bible is all about saying no to temptation, trials and tribulations, whatever the case might be in the present because of what God has for us in the future. I pulled this from a book off my shelf. Listen to it. Very little in our culture encourages us to live by faith every hour of every day. On the contrary, the billboards, radio, television, newspapers, and magazines mount a relentless appeal for us to look away from Jesus as the source of our hourly strength and guidance. We are told that cars will work and food will work and clothes will work. They will supply not just transportation and nourishment and covering, but more importantly, they promise that they will also meet the longings of the heart for attention and power and excitement and esteem. If you and I are to live by faith in the hourly fellowship and performance of Jesus on our behalf, we need to set our minds steadfastly starting now to conscientiously think of him and look to him as we trust his promises. We make that decision now to trust his promises. Now, there's nothing wrong with owning a car. There's nothing wrong with buying new shoes. But everything that we do should be orientated toward what Jesus has promised us by way of satisfaction in the future. Not thinking that all of our joy is going to come from things or material Are we making our present decisions 
because of God's future promise. That's what these final verses are talking about. Let's look at them. It says, first of all, that God knows the way of the righteous. This is in verse 6. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now, <coughs> excuse me. This doesn't mean that God knows it like, like he's aware of the path. That's not what the word know means in, 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 in knowledge sense. It's, it's an intimacy suggestion. In other words, God doesn't just know the path of righteousness. It is his path. That's why he knows it. He paved it. It's not just an avenue he's familiar with. That's his road. The reason he knows the path of the righteous is because the righteous road is God's road. And secondly, the wicked won't be able to stand in judgment. I find this very interesting poetically because when we start the psalm, the righteous don't stand with the wicked. And when we finish the psalm, the psalmist says, the wicked are not going to be able to stand with the righteous. Let me say it again. There are consequences for our choices. There are consequences for our choices. We're back to this idea of standing. The righteous don't stand with the wicked, so they can stand with God. But the flip side of that is, the wicked do not stand with God, so they cannot stand with the righteous. We've all asked this age-old question, by the way. God, why do the wicked prosper? I'm sure you've asked it. You might be saying to yourself, I've never asked that question, you little liar. <laughs> you might have said it like this. I just don't understand. I'm doing everything right, and that person across the street, and, and why does God bless them and not bless me? Well, there's a lot of different shades that that question can be posed in, but the reality is we've all asked it. Lord, why do the wicked prosper? And the reality of the matter is Psalm 1, verses 5 and 6 are reminding us of something. Say amen if you're listening. Whether God decides to unfold judgment in this life or to reserve it for what is called the day of the Lord, in either case, the wicked will be judged and the righteous will be rewarded. Stay the course. Stay the course. Psalm 1 is reminding us there are only two paths. So stay the course. Don't get discouraged. If you are getting discouraged, if you're finding yourself less fruitful, go back to point one, examine the faith, examine the circles of influence that you're in, and ask yourself, is my finish and my fruit being compromised by my faith? If your faith is where it is, where it should be, then you will have fruitfulness in your life and you will be focused on your finish. But if your orientation and perspective has been compromised, if you're starting to ask God questions like, why is all the good stuff happening to them and the good stuff's not happening to me? Where's my love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Then maybe you need to go back to your faith and find out 
Are you walking in the way of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, and sitting in the seat of scoffers, instead of delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night? To close, let me say this. Every single day, you and I, we make choices. Some choices are more important than others. Today, I want to remind you of what we've talked about, the most important choice. We're talking about a choice to follow God with our hearts and our heads, a choice that shows itself and our faith, and our fruit. And help me out, and our finish.